1: April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I sit down with my guests to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. Chad Brown is a decorated U.S. Navy veteran who struggles to this day with PTSD. A failed suicide attempt eventually led Chad to found a nonprofit organization called Soul River Inc. Soul River brings together at-risk youth and veterans who act as mentors. Together, they visit threatened wild spaces and embark on mission-driven experiences based around advocacy and outdoor education. In this episode of Anchored, Chad and I discuss his remarkable story, the realities of PTSD, and what it's like to be a black man in fly fishing. This episode of Anchored is brought to you by Olukai. Aloha was born in Hawaii, but the Aloha spirit holds no geographic boundaries. With Aloha as their foundation, Olukai takes a different approach to footwear. Olukai crafts only the highest quality shoes and sandals with premium materials and artistic story details with the style, durability, and versatility for today's watermen and waterwomen who lead an active ocean-bound lifestyle. Whether you're loading up the boat with supplies at the dock, Fishing off the rocks or scoping out the best place to cast from the beach, Olakai's water-ready footwear is designed to keep you sure-footed with comfortable island style through every step of your journey. Shop or find your local retailer at olakai.com forward slash anchored. Chad Brown. Wow. You've been on my list for, you've been on my list since I started this podcast. Totally serious. Yeah, you're. You. You're. This is long overdue. We were scheduled in May actually this year when I was in. Or was supposed to be in Oregon, but then COVID hit, and uh, we decided to push it back till I was going to be back in America because I hate doing this remotely. Mm -hmm. But Chad, I look. I'm just going to jump right into it. You are a black man, and there's a lot to talk about right now, but. I really, really need you to be patient with me. And I want to start with your story because when I reached out to you last year to do this podcast, we were always going to talk about diversity. I mean, that comes up often on the show, but your story for me is so unbelievably inspiring. Can we just start with you?
2: Yeah, sure. Sure.
1: So let's start with where I start with everybody. Where were you born and raised?
2: Sure. I was born and raised, uh, in Texas, born out of Quero, Texas and raised up in, uh, Austin, Texas. And I was kind of back and forth. My grandma and a lot of my parents, my grandma and my grandfather lived in Quero, Texas on a farm. And I was back and forth from the city. And then the summers I spent time with my grandparents, uh, out in the country. Yeah. So, but yeah, you know, it's, uh, got to, uh, I was talking to someone earlier today about my background. And I, I'm a little bit blessed. Uh I was born, you know, with the outdoors, not the fishing part, but on my father's side. I come from a really long line of farmers and Hunters and black cowboys, and uh, and so I grew up with the background of going to black rodeos, and on Sundays in the afternoon in summer around the big tree and the family tree, our entertainment was me seeing my father and his brothers and his father going out into the pastor and wrestling bulls. You know, so (laughs) so it's a very interesting background. My you know brought up and I was you know bows and arrows and all that kind of stuff, you know, but ne- not fishing. It was just, and then the farming and my mother gave me the balance of art and music and theater. And so that was also her background as well. What she did as professionist wrote wrote uh, theater, basically for churches and stuff.
1: So how did you get into fishing then?
2: Fishing came way <laughs> later in my life <laughs> after a lot of trials and a lot of uh things that I'd done, you know, golly, I just, I guess you could say where I started uh, later in my life after the military and getting my education. I got into a profession as a photographer, designer, and got offered a job to, to Portland, Oregon, and got hired into an agency as a senior uh, art director. And that was when things started to go south with me and started to lose a lot of weird, a lot of weird things started happening with me. I started to lose direction. Losing track of my thoughts, getting angry, um, you know, and I didn't, I didn't know what was going on. But those are the pre stages that I was facing and dealing with, which was a form of PTSD, uh, you know. And sooner or later, I got to a point where I, I lost everything, you know. I couldn't function, even getting a job anymore. I couldn't hold down a job, and uh, got really, it got really bad in my life, where where I became homeless and I lived on the streets in Portland for twelve months and. The only way I was able to support myself, which I didn't really support myself, but I would, you know, it was really weird because I came from all these challenges in my life, military, school, and everything, profession, and here I am standing in a blood mine, uh, getting, uh, giving twenty dollars for for a pint of blood to put gas in my tank and put food in my stomach, you know, and and that's kind of like what I was doing for a couple of years and. got to a point where I was doped up on uh, heavy medication from the VA. And, um, you know, one day I went out to the river and and drew my weapon and attempted to uh, commit suicide. And I was so strung up and on dope, you know, not street dope, but the medication I was getting from the VA that I blacked out. Cops found me that I was a vet, took me up to the VA and, um, Kind of like I was a vet and so I was up in the VA in the in the psych, in the psych ward for seven days to prove to the doctor I was not gonna hurt myself you know and right at that point there was a lady lady friend of mine that took me to the river and said this is where I used to come to when I was dealing with my divorce problems and stuff you know and so that was when fishing came into my life and she showed me and just so happened there was a fishing store right behind us and we walked over there I uh, got me a fly rod and didn't really know anything about fly fishing. I just picked one up and got some, uh, gear and put something, whatever. I didn't know what I was doing, but something together and went back to that river where she was at. And I cast out hooked into a jack salmon and I was hooting and hollering all over the place. You know, I was strung out on heavy medication, but I was hooting and hollering so much that, you know, it was kind of like, I, I, like it's, it was kind of like I've been a walking zombie for a very, very long time to where I couldn't smile. Uh, I lost feelings. It was just this, I was just existing. And then when I hooked in on that Jack Salmon, I felt this urge of happiness and excitement. And at the same time, I became really sensitive to the air. And I remember just the, the wind, you know, in nature and the wind just brushing across my cheek. I felt that, you know, and it made me feel alive. And uh, You know, and then I was feeling that my excitement was kind of like pushing a lot of this medication in my body out of my pores. My excitement was pushing this medicine out of me. And so I started putting one and one together and two and two. And I was just like, you know, this is something that makes me happy and this is something that what I want to do. Went back to the VA, talked to my docs. My docs literally wrote me a prescription of fish more. If you continue to fish more and do group therapy, then we'll slowly wing you off your medications. And, you know, I guess the story is written. I said I fish more. That was my commitment to the VA hospital, you know, and, and so I continue to fish more and fish more. And of course, growing a new community, uh, learning a new way of looking at, uh, our environment, our nature. And it was not something of knowledge that I even had, uh, when I was, uh, in New York in school and military this was a whole new thing and so I became a people to the river a people to a new community of anglers and hunters and conservation folks uh I was a pupil from all over. I was even kind of like a, I would call like a roadie, you know, like a roadie that's picking up the bags for a rock group. I became kind of like a roadie for guides, you know. And I didn't guide, but I I was just out there just to soak in, you know, as much as I could, you know, from every guide that I was able to connect with. And and my exchange of getting on the boat and going on the guided trip was that I would handle all the bags, you know. It was I was humble, you know, just handle all the bags and bring them in and be an assistant to wherever I could be an assistant to to help the guide out. And it was just a time for, I probably did it probably get four or five years of just, um, living like that. You know, a lot of times I lived out on my rig and it was just, um, yeah, it was just a really weird place, you know, and chasing my demons. And so that's really what's, what has helped me was fishing. Yeah.
1: That's a lot for me. I don't know if it's a lot for everybody, but it's a lot for me to digest. And I hope that you don't mind if I go back and pick my way through it a bit.
2: Yeah. I don't mind. No.
1: Okay. So you, I'm assuming you just had a regular childhood where you have, you just were a regular kid, but you didn't fish in high school, obviously.
2: No. no, no. Uh,
1: and then you well, went well, to do-
2: Let us stop right there. I mean, I don't know what you mean by a regular childhood, but my childhood was what I just shared with you, but also, um, you know, my family was uh, separated, my father and my mother. And so I came from a broken home and, but my mom and my dad happened and they were just good friends. And, and the rest was, I was, uh, I was also, which a lot of people don't know, or some people know, but, uh, I was also in the gangs. And, um, and so I was, uh, heavily in the gangs and growing up through high school, uh, fighting a lot and, uh, got stabbed a couple times in my legs. And, uh, my mom was my saving grace. And so, there was another part of my life growing up where she connected me to the big brother, big sister program. And just so happened. He was, I remember his name's captain Maxwell, the head police department in Austin, Texas. And, and and he would uh, mentor me, you know? And so, uh, so there's, yeah, a couple pieces having, so I I don't know if it's average, but
1: (laughs) I would say, I would say not. How on earth do you get into gangs? Like, how does that happen? I know it's different for everybody, but how did that happen for you?
2: You know, that's a good question. Um, I can't it's it's yeah, I don't really know how it happened other than uh I think, you know, when yeah, that's a, it's interesting to say. It's I, I, I wasn't looking for it. It was just something I was young, I was really young, you know, and uh and and my mom was working two jobs and putting herself through college and my dad was you know, living like hundred and fifty miles away and he's doing his thing. So my mom wasn't home as much, uh, but she did the best that she can do to support me and my brother. And so she would, you know, cook a big old pot. Of beans and we'll make those beans last the whole entire day but that would be me and my brother's food and while she's out <laughs> that's, really, that's really what she'll do she'll get up really really early in the morning she'll make this huge big pot of beans you know and it's right there <laughs> and everything you know and so that way she knows that we always have food can always take you know our little bowl and put it in there and everything like that and that's kind of like the routine and everything so we have food right there me and bro we'll always get our beans and but it, get creative, and because we get tired of eating beans, you know. But but, uh, but yeah. So and and that was it, you know. And she would leave, and so she would come back until wow, late. I mean, like I mean, I don't know, eight nine o'clock, and at you know late in the afternoon and at night basically. And so me and my brother, we were you know left to you could say really fend for ourselves for that time frame while my mom was gone and working one job and. Out of another job and going to school. And also we would go to, you know, yeah, me and my brother, we would walk to school, get dressed and everything. And that was like the routine. And so I think through by my mom being absent where it's understood why she was absent, but there was a, there was a lot of time lag, you know, maybe at home. Uh, and that time lag, it opened itself up to. Many other possibilities. You know, it's like if you know you if you got too much time, you can easily find trouble. And so, I think there's a lot much more opportunity of influences that 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 come into that time lag between you know five a.m. and she's not coming back until nine at night. You know, and so me and my brother were there. We're going to school. You know, get something to eat, and so. You know, there was a lot of that. And my father, he, you know, my father, he would pop in randomly to pick us up, take us out, but he wasn't there consistent. So when my father wasn't there, you know, I was uh, drawn more into a lot of the kids, you know, from high school and stuff and make friends. And some of those friends were probably, well, they were bad friends too and tied into uh, community gangs. And, and that's what led me, I guess, led me into that. It, it, it it filled uh, an emptiness of family, you could say, you know, and and uh, that time and like brothers, and and so I would say that's probably how I got into it. It was just you know seeking that that family, you know, and they they became my family at that time.
1: That makes sense. I can understand that. And then what about getting into the service? Because that just seems like such a stark contrast. <laughs> it is, and it isn't when you think about it. Yeah. You know.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Standing, teaming up together, I guess, technically with like-minded people to stand for something you believe in. Yeah. I mean, I want to say brotherhood in a lot of ways, even though that's not politically correct. But how did you make that transition from that past life or, you know, the the, I'm just going to call it for what it is, but like the gang sort of affiliation to serving your country?
2: Yeah. So, you know, as I was moving forward with the gangs and stuff, I wasn't that great in school, but uh, I did get accepted to a junior college in Dallas. It was an art. Actually, it was the Art Institute of Dallas. And so I've always been creative and been artistic. And that became kind of like a driving part in my life to want to go to school. Uh, at the same time, I did have one foot in and out of the games. I was constantly fighting that. Uh, you know, once we get involved in that kind of stuff, it's it's very, very hard to get out of. And so as i was fighting that and also going to school at the same time, it got to a point, a financial point where I basically uh, didn't have enough money to finish school. And so my only way or my only option that was in front of me, uh, was to join the Navy. And, uh, you know, I, I, I was always kind of against the, Against the military, I wasn't really down with it. My father served, my uncle served, you know, that's another, on some of my, my dad's side of the family, it's all military. So I really wasn't down to doing it, but uh, I did it, be, I really did it because the fact that I needed money for school. I wanted to finish school. I liked what I was doing, what I was studying. And so that was my exit out. And so I joined, you know, and didn't realize that uh, what I was getting into, but uh, but yeah, crazy crazy ride.
1: What were you trying to, or what were you taking in school? What did you want to do? Uh,
2: I was going into uh, the school to uh, to take up a uh, commercial art. Is what they call it at that time before it had turned into communication design. You know, so I was going to school to take on uh, commercial art, study commercial art, be a graphic designer.
1: Okay, that makes sense. Okay, so then you go over. I- I'm super ignorant to. Uh, service and, and that part of America, even though it's, I've got no excuse for like, obviously, Canada has okay. got military. But so what happens you get you get deployed, you go overseas? Where did you go?
2: Uh, You know, when I joined, I I, I kind of really joined at the wrong time. I thought I was going to the Cold War. But at that time, it was turning from the cold uh, to basically, you know, a hot war, basically, some people call it. So when I went in, it was Right when Desert Storm was uh, popping off. And so after boot camp, um, you know, I went up and done my schooling when I was in Orlando, Florida. Then I got my assignment up to Williamsburg, Virginia. And when I got there, it was the, the beginning of my roller coaster ride of being in the military. I was deployed all over. The longest I stayed in the United States was three months in my Navy uh, spent and I was in the 14 different countries back to back, uh, third world countries. I was in the desert storm, desert shield war, and also, uh, Somalia operation restore hope. Then I was sent down to Cuba. My last deployment was actually down in Antarctica in the bottom of the world for four months on the ice. And then, uh, then I got my papers to, you know, for getting out of the military. So I spent a lot of my time in a lot of third world countries behind enemy lines, 14 different countries and uh, into wars, basically.
1: When you say you got your papers, I'm assuming... My
2: discharge papers.
1: Was that because of an injury or an injury or a mental no. issue or were you... No, I was done? done.
2: It was, it was, it was my uh, contract was, uh, you know, of my enlistment, you know, you get your walking papers, (laughs) you know, to go home. You know, you've done your time and time to go home, basically.
1: Talk to me about PTSD, because I think I always associate it with somebody who's had a really traumatic, singular event, rather than it being an entire period of their life. What is PTSD for you? What has it been for you?
2: PTSD is exactly what you said. You know, every veteran, every soldier has experienced that. You know, it's, it's really, uh, when you are, when you have experienced a traumatic event, it could be a a one-off event or it can be a long-term ongoing type of, uh, events, a series of events that has happened, you know, and so it's, it's a place where your body and your mind is, is, is not made to, to cope in an extreme type of situation, a trauma. And whether it be a physical trauma or uh, or a mental trauma, it's just that we're not made up for that, you know, and it's just that's just not how we made it. you made, it, you know. So it, it cripples you. It, you know, every for as a veteran, it affects people in many different ways. It kind of depends on the makeup of your, I, w- I don't know the scientific, but makeup of your body and the makeup of your mind. You know, it really affects everybody in different ways, you know, but there's a similarities that one veteran will have to a certain degree, which it could be like depression, anxiety. When you start getting into the, sensi- the sensitivities of, of smells and in colors, et cetera, those are case by case, you know, are sounds, you know, loud sounds. That, that's also case by case. Uh, it, it just depends on what you have been exposed to and what you went through, you know, and how you make that association to how that association is made to the triggers and those triggers where are the sounds, the, the colors, the, the lights, uh, the noise, et cetera, et cetera, you know, so it really depends on that individual and that individual's trauma, what they've been exposed to, you know, but it's a crippling uh, mental disease. Uh, it's also something that you never really find a, a healing for. it. It's an ongoing type of work in progress that the individual has to do to continue to develop a better skill set to help fight that type of mental disease, and and it's a hard fight. It's a very very dark fight, and in a lot of family and wives, husbands, etc. It's it's that disease been it's been known to tear up relationships, and just for the mere fact that the people that are trying to support that individual there's this place where they just don't know how to support that individual to a point where it becomes very disruptive and it just, you know, it just explodes. And to the person is trying to support it, it the reality, it, it wears that person out. And I think that's where the relationships tend to fall off or, or whatever relationship that you have, um, because it's hard. It's, it's really hard, you know, especially when you haven't seek the help. And are got the right kind of medications to be able to level you out. And also, while you're doing that, the person or the group or whoever's just trying to support you, you know, they also have to go through a process of counseling and learning how to support what you've been through. And how to cope with your PTSD and your triggers. It's a, it's a heavy overhaul change, not just for the person fighting That mental disease, but it's also it puts the family through some serious loops and changes within their own environment where they have to work around uh, supporting that person at the same time, supporting themselves to keep a healthy space moving forward. It's a very delicate walk. It's hard. It really is hard. You know, it's, it's extremely hard and it's a long fight, you know, it really is a long fight. Uh, that's, I, you know, I, think, I believe that's why you have so much of a high rate of, uh, of veterans that are killing themselves a month. I think it's like 22 a month to some 22 or more a month, actually, you know, uh, of veterans, because it gets to that place where they, you know, it's, 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 it's a hard fight dealing with demons and to people who are non veterans, uh, you know, who get their, you know, peaches like women, you know, women may go through a serious trauma of, of rape as a rape victim, you know, and even though she may get the help, but she's stuck with this heavy, heavy weight, this heavy trauma, you know, so the touch of her husband just, a, you know, his hand can come on her shoulder. She's jerking. She's pulling away. You know, and so these are triggers. And so the husband, you know, says, you know, the tables are turned. The husband actually has to learn how to work and support his wife now because what she's went through is so traumatizing that it is adding a leverage and a heavy weight on their relationship. And the question is, can a husband be able to sustain a healthy relationship supporting his wife? You know, and so that's a heavy, heavy, hard thing to deal with. And the only reason why I brought that, because I wanted to kind of make that transition where normal people, regular people can be able to understand that other than just a veteran, you know, because there is that levels of triggers from, you know, regular civilian versus veteran. And when you are traumatized, you're traumatized on the third degree. And these are the ramifications that that happens when it comes to family members trying to support somebody with a mental trauma disease, you know. But, yeah, it's tough.
1: Yeah, I mean survivors of car accidents, absolutely, plane crashes—they have PTSD, absolutely. right?
2: Yeah, you know. So yeah, whatever your body go through—that shock, that uh, uh, absorbent of of uh, of a bang, you know, or or a blow to the head—that's all trauma that turns into a, into a form of PTSD where you got to seek and get the right kind of help. Uh,
1: maybe this is maybe I shouldn't be asking this, but I'm probably going to ask you a lot of things I you know shouldn't be asking. What was your bang? What was the bang for you?
2: What do you mean the bang?
1: The PTSD bang.
2: Uh, Yeah, I'll only go into a little bit. I don't really want to uh, go on all that. It was my, it was, it was, it was war. I lost brothers. Um, I was in some really bad situations and some pretty sticky situations that that I had it took me a long time and still to this day hard to try to find a uh, closure with and deal with and and so there was just some you know uh, i'll I'll just say this uh you know war war is ugly um there's a lot of bad things that happens behind enemy lines man becomes something that you the things that man can do um, in war it's it's um it's 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 not yeah it's it's worse than watching a movie and there's no rule book when starts going off and you do what you need to do to um, survive, you do what you need to do to uh, get home without trying to get into a body bag and you go after and you support your brothers and you're there and that's your family and so there's a lot of things, it's it's very, very chaotic, it's it's a lot of chaos, it's just, um, yeah.
1: Yep, here's my broader question, is it even possible to go to war and come back without PTSD?
2: I don't know. I, uh, I've i never met anybody that, uh, I don't know. That's a good question. Uh, you know, I, I, it, it's possible to go into the military and come back with no PTSD if you didn't go to war. But I've also come across men and women that just went, that served and served uh, states. I served right here in the United States on base and they had their own version of experience. That has led them to PTSD as well, you know. And so, I, I think it really just depends on. It, it really comes down to your walk. Everybody's walk is different. You can have an experienced trauma, serving on base in the United States without having to go to war. Uh, you could, you know, easily be in a car accident or something. You know, I don't know. PTSD is a tough deal.
1: Okay, so you get put on medication, which is pretty standard. I think they that there's a lot of that, right? There's a lot of being prescribed yeah, medicine. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you go to the river, you're in this horrible situation where you're planning on hurting yourself, which is unfortunately a very common situation that is, that has probably, I don't think it's not, it's not new, right? What, what does it show? Like, is is it going up or has it always been this common, but it just hasn't been as in our faces with media?
2: Yeah. You know, I, that's a good question. I can't really speak to like, like the Vietnam uh, era, you know, of, of veterans that came back. You know, it's really interesting because, you know, you know, to, not just to change the the conversation, but uh, when you got veterans from the Vietnam era, veteran from the Desert Storm era, and from the Afghan era, you're talking about literally three different type of veterans. You really are. You know, it's three. It's three. You know, even though we all serve and we have a lot in common to a certain degree, you know, that veteran that's from the Vietnam era is a different animal compared to the veterans who are coming from the Desert Storm era and from the Afghan era. You know, it's three totally different type of animals, but we all wear the same uniform and we had to do what we need to do, you know. And so I, I don't know the suicide rate. From the Vietnam era, I, I would note it I know they had a really bad time that's a historical thing that everybody knows when those veterans came back from Vietnam era. they had a really bad time and I don't think that you know PTSD was not probably the 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 acronym that they were used. I think it was shell shock. And, and the medicine was different, you know, uh, how they treated their vets and their soldiers. It's a whole, complete different type of era, you know. So maybe the uh, the suicidal rate was much higher, I guess. I don't know. I do know from what I've heard from other vets is there was this, this mentality of, of fighting in silence. Uh, a lot of Vietnam vets and um and meaning basically not seeking to help you, you, you tough it out. And, you know, and so you find a lot of vets, and then you got a lot of Desert Storm vets, which I was part of. And and I think that was probably the beginning of a high suicide rate, because, it's, like I said, it's a different era, different period. And so there's guys like myself that went out. And when we came back, that was probably I think I think that was the beginning of calling it PTSD, other than, shelter, you know, and and that was probably the peak when things started to turn around. You start seeing, you know, suicides. And then from the Afghan war, the recent war, Afghanistan war, then you got more vets coming back with different diagnosis and different forms of PTSD as well. And so that really spiked up the suicidal rate. But I think what you find in a lot of the vets, some of the vets from the Desert of the storm era and then the Afghan Afghanistan era, a combination was the those veterans are much more vocal in their advocacy for themselves and for other things that they need versus a veteran from the Vietnam era. But yeah, so I hope I, I'm not sure if I answered your question though. But... You
1: no, know, you have because you put it into perspective of how every era is different. And and the other thing to consider as well is you know, we we say suicide, but and like I don't want to get into definitions of words, but a lot yeah. of these men, in my eyes, did kind of commit suicide in that they dove into a bottle. A yeah. lot of them just dove into alcoholism, yeah. and that in turn ended their life their life in a lot yeah. of ways.
2: absolutely, absolutely. there was a lot of that. There was a lot of that, you know and and I think and and that's you know when're looking at the v a system here in the United States, it's always been kind of like behind the eight ball of not being able to catch up to support a lot of our vets and so there was a, a, a lack of uh, attendance uh, being able to uh, seek you know doctors to to get the help when you go into the VA you know I mean this is crazy the stuff that I went through and I can get can put this in real perspective for you uh, versus a Vietnam veteran and India veteran but you know the stuff I went through in my peak was probably say 13 12, 12 13 years ago, I was really, really in a dark place. And when I went to the VA to check in, I had to wait almost, I'm going to say a max of two hours just to see a doctor, which that's a translation into civilian world. That can be, you know, kind of average. Some people experience that. But what you want experience is that when I go through and come back and get my medication, I'll get a number and here it is 10 o'clock in the morning And I'm still sitting there by three or four o'clock in the afternoon. I'm still waiting to get my meds, you know? And so that system is so archaic. It's unbelievable. And the paperwork is so slow, you know, for your benefits and everything. So it's, it's really sad. You know, I had friends of mine and my ex-girlfriend would come, you know, and she, and she didn't believe it, you know, so she would make a trip with me to the VA and, and she was like, oh, my God. It's like, you know, I say, wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's like you walking through a, a wounded war zone. You're seeing even Korean vets, Vietnam veterans, Desert Storm veterans, Afghanistan veterans, all the way from 1921, all the way up to 80 years old. Some of them doesn't have limbs. Some of them has limbs. Some of them has mental issues. Some of them don't have mental issues. And they're all sitting there with the white a little white piece of paper in their hand with the number waiting to get their call. And so every veteran knows this: if you go to the VA, you get that call and you get a brown bag. They give the brown bag of medicine and they put that medicine in there, that brown bag. And that's your bag of your meds that you take off and you use to take and help you cope through, you know, not having nightmares to not have an anxiety attacks, uh, not being able to have visions to all kinds of stuff, you know? And so it's a dark, stark place. You know, I think the VA is getting better, I guess from, you know, but when I was there, that was like 13, 12, 13 years ago. And that's kind of like how the process was when I was able to get my benefits. When I finally got my, my benefits in the VA, they finally I had to go through a lot of series of uh, evaluations and, and medical uh, examinations and stuff. and, and I finally got it. They, you know, stamped me down. You know, Mr. Brown, you are 50 percent mentally disabled, United States veteran, blah, 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 blah. And so that opened up for my benefits. And then I had to fight for my benefits. I I had to wait almost uh, two and a half years to get my benefits. You know, and and it was it was was really, really hard. I walked in one day to check up because it was crazy. It was a life. I was living in my rig. I didn't have enough money to get down to the VA because I really wanted I was living and hoping that my benefits was going to arrive. So I would either beg for money or I would like walk almost 10 miles to the VA to. Check in on my benefit on my benefits. and so when I did get to the VA to check on my benefits, I remember when they walked walk in and I have someone there to represent me, you know, like a, like a champion, I forgot to be call it, but, uh, but they were like a representation of me to help me through my paperwork, they come back to me and says, "Mr. Brown, are you sure you serve for your country?" <laughs> you know, and I just literally lost it. I lost it. I actually got kicked out of the building. Uh, I, I lost my mind. I said, "Are you serious?" <laughs> you know. And then, ben, then it got to a point where they needed proof. And luckily, all the proof my mom had, and I had to give my mom a phone call. And so she had to go to Kinko's and fax all my military records over to the baby because they felt, they said we can't find your records. We can't find your DD two fourteen. We can't find and my mom. So she faxed everything over and and then it says and then of course they I found out that they apologized, you know, and it was crazy. So that's how archaic <laughs> the VA is, you know, it, it, it was crazy. It was crazy. And so if you can imagine you're trying to navigate all of this on your own and you're mentally challenged right now, you know what I'm saying? You you're getting triggered left and right. You can't if you can't hold a job down to operate, you can imagine what kind of headspace that you're in. Trying to navigate paperwork, you know, government paperwork and everything like that, you know, so it's, it's tough, you know, and that's the kind of mess and kind of stuff that, that does sends a lot of veterans over the top too, you know, suicide, you know, it's, it's a stressful, stressful situation. And, and a lot of vets are not in that headspace to really operate and function like that.
1: Yeah, it it sounds exhausting. Um, Okay, so you go to the river to hurt yourself in the most extreme way. And this miracle hits you. Fly fishing. Yeah. Could it have been any form of fishing, or was it fly fishing specifically?
2: You know, I think. Uh, no, at that time it was. It was. It was fly fishing. I. I, I didn't know what fly fishing was. <laughs> I just got something and got gear. That's all I did. And, and, and you hear me. And, I, and I, I still call it gear, even though it's flies. You know. But yeah, I just. It was geared to me, oh, oh, cool, pretty cool. You know what? I don't know, you know. So I just tied it. I didn't I didn't know anything knots. I tied a regular, I don't know, a hand over hand square knot. I don't know. It was just, yeah, I, I didn't know what I was doing, you know, and and, and I just kind of cast out. It was all luck, but that luck is what, the, what made me feel whole, though. It turned into a jack salmon, you know. I was like, hey, <laughs> you know, it was just jumping all over the place.
1: So in your case, it was the fish. That really set it off for you. Did it end up like, were you able to really recognize any of the other attributes that were really helping bring you into a healthy headspace? Was it the flow of the water?
2: No. You mentioned
1: the the wind on your face. Was it any of that or was it just, was it the fish? It
2: was just hooking into a fish. That's all it was for me at that time. It was just hooking into a fish because I was not even, I was clueless about the river, you know, flowing and and the wind and everything, because I was so drugged. I was drugged up on meds, you know. And so when I hooked in on that fish, that's what brought me to this new life of like, hello, <laughs> you know, I'm a new on the <laughs> block, you know. And I was hooting and hollering all over the place, and I mean, I was screaming. I think I, I people's all next to me. They was like, why is he so? acting so loud, you know, but yeah, I, I let my colors show that day. I will never forget. It was a really, it was an awesome special day for me. You know, I'll never forget that day and that joy that I had and, and how hooking on that one fish, it just made me feel alive. It it I felt myself in the presence. It was like I woke up my soul all this time, it was like, wow, I've been sleeping all this time, and I just woke up. You know, oh, yeah. I, but yeah, it was awesome. Yeah.
1: Okay, so what happened next? Then, obviously, you got the fishing bug, which most of us are super familiar with. So, yeah. what was the next? <laughs> what was the next step for you? Did you just dive all in?
2: I dive all in. I was all in. You couldn't. You. <laughs> you know, it didn't matter where I laid my head because I was still in and out, homeless and everything like that. I did not care. Uh, I had a fly vise. I would tie right there in my front seat of my car and I would tie flies and I have all these books, any, any money that I would get when I was, you know, you know, getting money from, uh, for the bloodlines and everything, and I'll go and, and buy me, like fly tying books and, and I would look at them and, and then I'll spend time over oh, the fly shops became my haven when they were opened up, especially on weekends, I would go to the fly shop and I would sit down with old heads, you know, the, you know, the old white anglers. And uh, and you know, it's really cool you walk in and you see a big old Folgers cup over there, you know, and Folgers coffee, you know, and I'll sit down, I'll pour me some coffee and I'll sit down there all day. And, you know, we have nothing in common except fishing, you know, you know, and so, and I'll sit there and I will just soak in all the lies that the fishermen would say, you know, and I would, <laughs> and I would look at their flies and all kinds of stuff. And, yeah, I was just like all in, you know, and I I uh, that's where I picked up a lot of my friends uh, on the river, you know, and learn how to tie flies. I learned how to build rods and I would just spend time at the fly shops talking to all the guides and asking them questions. And yeah, I, that's that was my life. I just like, yeah, I literally dove into the sport. I literally dove into it. Yeah. yeah.
1: I met you at the fly shop.
2: You did. I don't remember. Yeah,
1: <laughs> it would have been. It not. would have. <laughs> it would have been like. I'd have to get my timeline right. I met you in Welch's. At Mark's oh, shop. Well, that was Christmas, right? Like I think it
2: was a Christmas. yeah.
1: Christmas. Yeah, and it would it would have been close to ten years ago.
2: Wow, that's a long time.
1: <laughs> that's a yeah. Long time. yeah. Yeah, uh, and. You stuck out like a sore thumb, not obviously because you're a black man. I mean, yeah. let's just keep it real, right? Yeah. But, and you're, and you're an attractive black man. You caught my eye and you came in super, you were super sharp looking, like you were so well dressed. <laughs> okay, okay. But you, you came in, you had this like tight shirt on. I try to remember. I think you have tattoos. Do, do you have tattoos?
2: I do have tattoos, yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. And I
1: just remember thinking to myself, "Who is that?" <laughs> oh my
2: goodness! Whoa. But
1: you were very comfortable in the shop, like you obviously had spent a lot of time there. But yeah, that's where I met you all that time, all that time ago. So right. talk to me then about the next step in your fishing career, because I remember when you started Soul River. Tell us about what Soul River uh, started as.
2: Uh, You know, so Soul River started, I, I guess, uh once when I was coming out of uh, a lot of my learning and, and getting good at what I was doing and growing a, a stronger community, I became, I got a little bit stronger to, to points for myself where I felt comfortable that it was like ready for, in time for me to get back into society. And I said to myself, and I was actually on the Clackamas River wading the water. And I was like, I think I said, you know, I'm ready to kick some butt to get back, but for me to get back I I want to do something of like starting my own thing or whatever but I want to do something in the realm of using my passion of what I found which was fly fishing and using it as a way to bring people together you know working with kids and working with veterans and bringing this, you know, I I was kind of like juggling and I kind of was sharing the idea with a couple of people and, and it did go into kind of like a little small product type of thing of me putting hats together and all this kind of stuff and everything like that to sell, to make extra money and everything like that. And I kind of really didn't know where it was going to grow. I was really doing something and feeling my way through to see what works and what doesn't work and how it's gonna land, you know, and and so I didn't go to school to create a nonprofit. I, that was not my thing or what I wanted to do, you know, and it was only circumstance that forced me into a place and led me into growing and doing a nonprofit, which became Soul River. And so river evolved. It evolved in many different places, many different levels. And I started out, you know, with the local anglers of friends of mine, and they helped me. You know, I remember I came out with Silver hats and a lot of people people's wearing the Silver hats and buying the Silver hats and stuff, you know, and that was all I had, you know, and I said, yeah, man, here, here, you know, we, you know promote the brand, promote the brand. And, you know, it was awesome. People was like, buddy, it was awesome. It was great. You know, it was like a little small little movement happening, you know, and I was still, again, I was still trying to figure out, uh, put my finger on like, what's the next steps?
1: Chad, I'm going to interrupt you because I got to tell you something. You were doing all of that When it was still, when the fly fishing industry was still making this transition from kind of the old crusty sport into this cool new, new age vibe, right? The trope bump era, the new videos. Yeah, Like, I remember that.
2: Forgot about that. You know, you're right. right. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Golly, that was gutsy. People thought I was nuts and crazy. You know, but yeah, it it was a fun ride. It was fun. You know, it was really fun. But no, you're absolutely right. You know, and speaking of that cool funky, I remember when I first did my uh, uh, trade show. You know, and and I, and I had you know a couple of anglers with me and everything, and they would follow me. And say, yeah, we want to help you out. We will say, okay, okay, okay. You know, so I had my banner, silver banner, and some swag and all this kind of stuff. And then I brought in these speakers, and I put each speaker on the side, and I just start rolling with 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 Barb Marley. Up in there, you know. <laughs> you know, and people and everybody is like looking at me like, what is that? <laughs> What's going on? Everything, you know. And so yeah, I, wanted, I said, Yeah, this one feel the vibe, you know, bring it in and have some flavors, some mint, you know, and everything like this. Yeah, but it was good. It was good. I it was a really good, interesting, fun time. The industry If they didn't accept me, they forcefully, uh, accepted me. (laughs) You know, and, and it was good. It was good, you know, and so, but sooner or later it started, it did started to evolve. And my next step, what I started to realize was, I have a really big passion of you know education, teaching, uh, connecting with our youth, and also our veterans, you know. And that was that started to become the early stages of forming my nonprofit. And when I started doing that, that's when I started started seeing a vision of what I wanted to do, really what I wanted to do. It goes back to that day when I first experienced that Jack Salmon and what it did to me is something that I embraced so much that I wanted every youth and veteran to be able to feel that same experience going out and catching their first fish. And that became a walk, you know, for the organization, the mission of Soul River. And then, of course, later down the road, you know, my voice started to change with that because I was like saying, you know, it's Soul River, it, it, it you know, it's founded in fly fishing and what we And what we do is we, you know, we break down the barriers. We go into wild spaces that are at threat. And that's what mobilizes into what we today, what we call them deployments. And we find places that are having issues on land, public land, fresh water, fisheries, wildlife, and whatever those issues are, we would, you know, connect with the conservation group that's doing the good work to help protect, advocate, or save whatever's happening there. And we use them as a way of, by them being the professionals, the experts in that field, we use them to help us build out a curriculum onto this deployment. And the veteran steps up, they take that curriculum, they teach into these wild spaces that are at threat, and this curriculum is basically engaging the youth and bringing their awareness up to all the issues that are happening. The youth are tasked with uh, research and assignments, that they have to do. And they basically, I the ultimate goal go with veterans is to raise them into outdoor leaders for tomorrow, you know? And, and so that's kind of like where the maturity of the organization started to mature and, you know, and then it moves into like injustice that of the environment, environmental justice and dealing with the uh, injustice issues uh, because I work with a lot of youth of color, including veterans, also disability and also, LGBTQ community. And so all the issues that they face, they bring that into the outdoor environment. You know, it doesn't separate. And so they bring that into it. So real issues tags along with the bodies that goes into the deployment. And so we're having to deal with real issues and at the same time deal with environmental issues. And so it's a lot of work, but it's fine.
1: Coming up, Chad and I continue our conversation. Again, thank you to Olakai for making this episode possible. Fishing is at the heart of Hawaiian culture today, just as it has been for centuries. Generations of fishermen and women expertly cast from rocky shorelines and sandy beaches. They spearfish, throw nets, fly fish, and navigate their boats beyond the reef and into the deep blue in search of their next big catch. No matter how they do it, there's an attention to detail and respect for the ocean that guides their passion. At Olukai, they believe in the same attention to detail when crafting the highest quality shoes and sandals built for every type of marine environment. Olukai's water-friendly Nohia Moku slip-on shoe features razor siping with non-marking rubber for extra grip on the deck, the dock, or the rocks, and it's designed for easy on-off barefoot wear. Whether you're loading up the boat, shoreline fishing from the rocks, or scoping out the best place to set up on the beach, Olukai takes you one step further. Shop or find your local retailer at olakai.com forward slash anchored. It, I mean, obviously in seeing what's going on in the world right now, I think a lot of us can see how it's a lot of work. Uh, and before we talk about that, which I don't even know how we're going to approach, Well, we're just going to dive right in. But what are the logistics of your program? Because it's really inspiring. So if I was a young troubled 17 year old who was in a similar situation to you on the river and lost or in on my couch and lost, how does it, how does it work? Do they just reach out to you? Do they visit the website?
2: Yeah. They just basically go online and we have three portals, uh, portals of applications. We have one for veterans, one for youth and one for volunteers. And the youth will just go to that one that's uh, for, uh, for, for youth and they'll pull that application down, fill it out and submit it. You know, and when when they submit, we're not looking to turn a youth away of qualifications, et cetera. What we're trying to do is extract as much information that we can about the youth, where we can learn and understand how to place them in Soul River on a deployment. The more information we know about the youth, the better off we are because when on our deployments, we travel in small groups and tight quarters, and so the more information we know. It helps us be able to make sure that you has a successful experience when they go on deployment and when they come back from deployment. You know, and so yeah, go ahead.
1: Oh well, I was just wondering how how it works because remember you said deployment to me when we were arranging this podcast last year, and I was like, oh, I thought you were done going you oh, know yeah. overseas. And you said no, no, different deployment. So right, right. how many people? How many participants versus how many applicants?
2: Yeah, uh, so we would average. I would say anywhere between 40 to 50 or close to 60 applicants per a deployment season. Our season is from late May and it goes to September. And we would average around, uh, I'm going to say anywhere between four to seven deployments per season. It kind of depends on What's going on? Uh, all of the, all of the applicants are 100% on deployments. We don't turn them back. You know, they just apply, you know, so all applicants, every youth that comes in, all, if you apply, you're on a deployment, you know, and like that, you know, so all the youth come through. Absolutely. Once when the applications are submitted, I have an application committee that's made up with me, one of my staff members and a board member, and we will, Sit down one on one with every youth and every veteran and every volunteer. It has to be in person, not by phone. Uh, with the youth, it has to be in person with their parents or with their guardian. And the, and we get to know the parent as well because the parent is taken along through the process. Um, because we have to earn that trust with that parent from them to let us take their youth three or four thousand miles away, you know. And so we started at an early stage by bringing in that parent and that youth. And then every time we have a clinic to engage with that youth, we actually invite the parent along with them through the whole process, you know? So they're going through the process. There's, there's, there's clinics that's established, Uh, For each deployment and that clinic covers everything from gear prep uh, preparation to, you know, the psychological part of uh, how to control, you know, emotions and et cetera, being in the outdoors under stressful situations, et cetera, how to cope. A lot of veterans would go through this, you know. Uh, especially veterans who's not used to working with kids. So we would have clinics for veterans to learn how to talk to kids. Uh, if there's happened to be like high winds coming in really hard and you, instead of yelling it, et cetera, this is how you would talk to kid in a stressful situation. You know, Cause we never know. Some kids may have tr- their own triggers as well. And so what I'm speaking to is clinics, but what we also have is a, like a big orientation day, that orientation day, it used to be one day, but now it's two days. And it's two two long, full days of nothing but back-to-back clinics. It brings all the youth, all the veterans, including parents, on the one roof. And we're in these series of clinics are clinics from a psychological place, from the medical. It's fun, you know, break down, uh, get to know you type of clinics. A good example is like an icebreaker where it's one of my favorite ones. I, I created this one myself is... Uh, we would put all the vets, we'll put like a three to one or two to one, put all the vets in teams and each vet will have their youth and we'll be in a huge, big room. And uh, one, so what happens is that the veteran would get blindfolded and each veteran is blindfolded. And so we would bring a bag and drop a bag with each group. And we'll turn that back over and drop. And when we open that bag and drop, it's it's a tent with all the little pieces all over the place. And now the youth have to navigate the veteran to put together the tent while the veteran is blindfolded. It's hilarious. It's hilarious. It's completely hilarious. I mean, it's fun and it's so much of an icebreaker because you're seeing you jumping over the veteran and you trying to talk to it, trying to communicate because we, you know, now we're challenged because we have to build communication skills. You know, the veteran can't see, so the veteran's doing all this and everything, and you got the you no, no, you left. No, oh, I'm sorry, you're right, you're right. You know, all that kind of stuff and picking up, and so it, it takes. A good while, but it is hilarious, but it's a really big icebreaker, but it teaches the veteran and the youth how to work together. It breaks down all the things of feeling uncomfortable and et cetera. But now at the end, you got the youth laughing with the veteran, the veterans laughing with the youth. You know, they're, they're, they're becoming buddy buddy or sister sister, you know, and everything like that, you know, but it's really cool. But so we would do a lot of those kind of icebreakers to build relationships. With the youth and the veterans. And at the end of the day, they're like family, exchanging numbers and and email addresses and all that kind of stuff and everything, you know, but it's really cool. It's pretty, it's pretty awesome.
1: How does fishing tie into it?
2: Yeah, fishing ties into the part where. You know, we don't in our clinics. We talk about the fishing piece, the fly fishing piece, and everything. You know, so part of that is also the conservation awareness piece. We go over that, and throughout the day, I'll have a couple guys and, and conservation partners that will step in and come in and speak about the work that they do, and say, "Oh, this is John Doe or Susie Jane here with this, uh, um, you know, this guide company or with this conservation group." You'll be seeing them later. When our deployment season kicks in, but they're here for 15 minutes to give you guys kind of like a sneak preview of what you guys are going to be doing and what you guys are going to be engaging with on this deployment or this deployment, et cetera, you know, and so they'll get like a little sneak preview and then we'll go through a clinic of how the. You know, put on your waders properly, you know, and so one of the veterans will bring out the full blown the waders the boots and everything like that. And we'll put the waders on in front of all the kids and everybody, including veterans, because a lot of veterans, sometimes we get they don't know how to fly fish either. And so everybody's there to learn. And one veteran get up and he'll say, these are wading boots. You know, and these are your neoprene, blah, blah, blah. This is what you're supposed to do in high school to put them on, you know, just all the basics and, and everything. And then we'll bring out the fly rod and you and we'll break down the whole anatomy of the fly rod in front of everybody. So now that you guys know what the fly rod is, you know how the waders are. So when deployment season starts this is what you guys are going to be wearing. This is what you guys are going to be doing and everything like that. And so we just want to, you know, get you all into knowing what waiters are, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. so, but yeah, and then you got the fly box. You know, we have a big fly box and and that'll be a whole nother cleaner of flies. And we'll talk about it kind of like a, in an umbrella way, and then we'll pass out the fly box, and then then you get all these oohs and ahs, and oohs and ahs, and then we'll go, Oh, pretty color, pretty color, pretty color, you know, and yeah, it's crazy. It's it's pretty fun, you know, and so that's, you know, so we do uh, like an overview on everything, and then when the deployment gets ready to come up, that's when we start having three or four different clinics. We get everybody prepped with the gear, and then when we actually get on deployment, uh they've been kind of like, you know, fed 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 this and now the deployment kicks in and that's when we really go to town and and make things happen, make the magic happen.
1: So the deployment is the fishing trip.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's 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 just it's it's, it's okay. So a deployment is just like it's a brand name, of course it's coming from the military. I'm just, you know, retooling the meaning of that and replacing a trip or replace an outing, you know, because we don't do outings. We don't do trips. Trips are for fun. You know, trips are, you know, people pay to go on like really nice trips. We don't do outings like when we go to the park. We do deployments and our deployments is a mission. You know, we're on a mission, an environmental mission to bring these youth out there and to not just fly fish, but to raise them up into outdoor leaders of tomorrow and ambassadors of those of this land or of these fisheries, et cetera.
1: Oh, that is one of the coolest things I've ever heard. Are you planning on, I mean, I, you, there's only one of you. Are you planning on expanding? <laughs>
2: uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, there's two of me. I got one staff, <laughs> you know, I've got one staff. I'm working on another one, <laughs> you know, but, uh, uh, but yeah, uh, sooner down the road, uh, yeah, definitely plan on expanding. Absolutely. You know, it's crazy running a nonprofit. It's just the business of it and the fundraising of It's just, um, it's a daunting Nightmare, <laughs> you know, and and but uh, soon, yeah, but we're but we're somewhere was doing good. I mean, we got really good backing and and good support from corporate companies to conservation groups and government, you know. And so, the more work that we do and and see a success in our youth, the better off we'll be. And um, yeah, it's gonna grow absolutely. Yeah,
1: how can people help?
2: People can help in many different ways. I'm constantly looking for volunteers, not veterans, but I'm constantly looking for volunteers who can help uh, in the realm of teaching. You know, if you have backgrounds, you know, you don't have to have a degree, but if you have a background in like outdoor education and outdoor survival, uh, you know, you have an understanding of reading, you know, uh, the insects in the water, etymology and all that, you know, a flight fishing guide. And so Constantly, we got a, re, uh, a revolving door of volunteers to uh, step up and come in, you know, and help engage. You know, resources is always keen to the organization. When we establish our deployments in different locations around the United States, you know, how that volunteer person can help even by having the information, helping us being able to navigate logistically how to get from point A to point B in that state. Good example, like we may have a deployment in Michigan State. You know, I've never been to Michigan, so I'm doing everything online. But it does help and makes a big difference of having a contact in Michigan that understands uh, the lay of the land and know what's going on, even from a permit standpoint as well. And so that person at Ground Zero, that we call Ground Zero, will can relay that information to us and prep us and help us be much more prepared while traveling into that location into Michigan. You know, and so resources and knowledge helps with the organization a lot. And, and also financial, which that's always a key to nonprofits, you know, making, you know, small donations to large donations, whatever donation that comes in, uh, it helps the organization. It, it, regardless, everything adds up. Yeah, that's three ways to help, basically. Yeah.
1: And they can do that by going through or going to SoulRiver.com?
2: Soul uh, org.
1: I'm proud of you, man. It's you've done really well.
2: Thank you. It's been hard.
1: <laughs> Speaking of hard, how are you? How are you?
2: Mm, I'm okay. <laughs> Just, uh, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm okay. I'm, I'm good with the, a lot of the stuff is happening. I'm coping. I'm dealing with it. I'm, I'm here. I'm here.
1: It's June 10th for me, June 9th for you. So this is all really hot Everything's uh really heated right now online, and I mean I don't know is is it a, is it the time to talk about it? Like you know I get really i get i don't know even know where to start in this conversation, and I think it's one of many mm. uh I get really defensive when with certain things like i I get really defensive when people for example I'll think, somebody will have heard me say, uh just what half an hour ago I said that you walked into the fly shop. And I noticed that you were a black man. I mean, don't. I wish that people would just understand that they need to dig deeper to my words. Like I noticed you that you're a black man, because if I'm being totally honest, I am attracted to black men. I mean, I, my first boyfriend for, we dated for six and a half years. He was half black. I mean, so, so yeah. when people say to me that, you know, you shouldn't see color, it's like, well, I can't help. Like I do see color. How do you not see color? But right. it doesn't right. mean it's in a bad way. I see, I see color. Culture and I see color and I see men and I see women and yeah. I see char- characteristics. I mean, by, by people listening to the show right now who are like, April, please don't even broach, don't even touch the subject because mm. we shouldn't believe in color, all lives matter, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Um, what's your mm. what's your what's your response? Should we see color?
2: Absolutely, everybody should see color. You know, uh, it's it's very very important. You know, that's a whole conversation right there, but it's very important for everybody to see color. Uh for anyone that says I don't see color, I understand why they say it because they're it's this this place of them acknowledging that I'm not racist. And by me not being racist, it's uh I only see one person or one human. But what we what they don't realize, I'm gonna say not we, but what they don't realize is by them saying that, it actually comes off to the other person or even to a younger kid of saying that it actually comes off in a really kind of like a negative way of making that person feel shame of their own color. And and so, you know, what we want to do is elevate what we see. When we elevate what we see, we bring it into a positive light and we make that person feel welcome in a safe space. And so acknowledging the person's color is not a bad thing, and it's not negative. You, what you're doing, you're acknowledging their existence, and you're acknowledging their culture, and you're acknowledging their well-being, and you're also acknowledging in a really subliminal way safe space. You're making them feel comfortable. You know, when someone says, "I don't see color," you know, for me, and of the knowledge that I know today, I don't see color. That makes me. That makes me feel bad. But you know, and and and, and but. To in, in the subconscious to someone younger, that can bring a complex to that person, you know, and make that younger person not feel comfortable about their own color. And then you got a young girl or a young boy looking at themselves in the mirror. It's like saying, "I wish I was this color," because if they don't see color, that that's it's a negative thing. And and maybe if I was this color, then they can probably see me as this color. You know whatever the case is, you know, and so it does a psychological thing, and that's kind of like where it comes from. And so I think you know I, I challenge the people, you know, to the, you know really to uh, to start, you know, acknowledging the color, and and now, and you'll see that acknowledging the color is 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 bringing that person into your world, and you're welcoming them. You are giving them safe space. You know, you're acknowledging their existence. You know, don't say I don't see color because I'm not a gray man, you know, you can't wash me out. You know, you know, I'm, I'm color. I am a black man, you know, or African-American, but how you want to call it, but acknowledge me, you know? And so that's important. We, we, we should be seeing color and we should always see color, you know, absolutely. Yeah.
1: Yeah. How is all of this affecting you right now?
2: Uh, I think, you know, it's, it's, it's hard. Um, you know, if you're leaning into the situation that has happened, you know, uh, the death of George and what happened, he, you know, he got killed, et cetera, you know, that right there struck a nerve. It opens up um, me feeling really hurt and sad and angry under the circumstances, regardless of what you have done, but me to know I'm one degree away from what has happened to George, that can happen to me. The circumstances and the situation can probably be different in Portland, but the outcome could be the same, just like George. And there's no justice that will protect me. And that's scary. But I've been living like that for a long time, you know, for my life of being, you know, being black and especially being in spaces. Uh, you know, more white spaces and feeling like I'm alone, you know, and pursuing a sport flight fishing, <laughs> you know, that just, you know, puts me a little bit much more further deep into feeling vulnerable. And, you know, I've, you know, been around my brothers and sisters who are anglers and, you know, again, it's like, oh, we, you know, we we're it's just all about fishing. It's not about this, you know, well, to you, it's about fishing. And I like the fish as well. But that's a choice that you have. I don't have a choice to really think like that. I I have to go through a process just because my skin's black in order to fish. You know, I have to go through that process every day. And that's tiring. That's, you know, uh, that is is challenging. It's something that you can't take an eraser. Go on my skin and that, you know. <laughs> you know, it's just it's what it is, is what it is, you know, and, and, and everything like that, you know. So it's it's definitely a different walk. It's a it's a different lens. And, you know, I when I did that, article, I you know, I had that photo and shot of me and you know, you know, carrying my weapon and you know, randomly I carry my weapon, you know, I carry random, you know, not all the time, but I had these conversations with my father and my mom, you know, and my mom worries about me a lot. You know, yeah, I'm in the older. I'm a you know, I'm a man. You know, I can I hold my own and have my own place and everything like that. But you know, we still have this conversation. I'm her son, and she's still trying to protect me. She's still trying to protect me. My father is still trying to protect me. He says, "Chad, we're gonna do for your birthday." And I said, "Well, Dad, I was thinking about going out to do some camping, you know, and and going out to the river and everything." He said, "Chad, please. I know that you." are into you know, the outdoors, and I know that flight fishing means a lot, but can you just please once listen to me and go to a campground where there's a whole lot of people instead of going out by yourself? You know, my dad is still trying to protect me. He said, well, you know, uh, I said, "Well, dad, what do you think about me carrying? He said, well, son, I get it. I understand. I carry, you carry, but I, but it, it still concerns me worse because, you know, if anything was to happen and I know that you're responsible, and I know, you know, I know that you do the right thing. But just by having that and something happens, only two things is going to happen to you, son. Either you're going to go six feet under. Or you are going to get hurt really, really bad and do time in jail. There's not going to be no justice. You know, and so it's 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 a scary place because I at the end of the day, to be honest with you, I don't want to go through the pain of what happened to George. I don't want anybody to go through that kind of pain. Let alone being in the outdoors and imagine if you're in the outdoors, even a woman, right? You're in the outdoors and you're struggling, you're fighting for your life. Someone's coming at you. You. you do it. Can you imagine becoming a victim where you can only fight and fend for yourself and you may not even win at that? I mean, it's just it's just hard. to, You know, it's just really hard to digest, you know. And so and it's a fear that I have that I don't want to experience. And so to keep myself from not experiencing is something that I want to say, you know what? I'm not going to be a victim. I'm not going to be a victim, but I'm going to go out and enjoy. But I'm not going to allow myself to be a victim. And which is a victim of hate, a victim of ugliness, ignorance, you know? And and so, yeah, you know, and me, and everything I'm saying and sharing is, is like, these are like brainstorming things that run, that goes through my head, you know, all the time, every time when I get ready to pack my gear, put it in my rig and go to the river to fly fish, you know, I got to be thinking like, all the kind, all the time, and so many experiences I've had, and so it's tough. I don't have a solution. It's tough. You know,
1: it's so easy to go into a really long, extensive conversation about this, which which I plan to do. Don't you worry. But I couldn't overshadow your incredible story leading up to June ninth. Sure. Um, but I do have to ask you a couple other things. Just. You know, I had reached out to, a. Uh, I, I read this book on feminism. I'm really into this book called The Guilty Feminist for people who want to read it. And she was saying, you know, the the, the biggest group of, of people in North America who are discriminated against who have the least opportunities are black women. Mm, mm, mm. And so I had reached out very uncomfortably to an African-American group in Australia. I, I must just sound like such a boob. I, I don't know how to approach them. And I was criticized. I mean, you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. People criticize you for not posting stuff on social. Then when you do share it on social, they they accuse you of tokenizing. Right. And right. that's really offensive to me because I don't know how, like, what is the difference between tokenizing and trying to be involved? Because I will guarantee you, somebody who doesn't listen to the full interview that we're doing right now mm. will see your picture on a thumbnail on my website And they will immediately think she's only interviewing him because he's black, Mm. which is horseshit. Of course, that's not why. I mean, we had this planned. I don't don't need to defend or justify. But how does somebody get involved without feeling like they are tokenizing or like they're going to be accused of tokenizing?
2: No, that's a good question. I don't I, I wouldn't I would I would hope that nobody wouldn't respond to this conversation with you Mm. like that. Um, You know, my understanding of tokenizing is, is when a company like a brand or something is using you for something where they can be able to gain off the leveraging of you or your color, et cetera, you know, which will help them gain like likes or money or whatever, you know? So, doing a podcast and in, in telling a story, I don't see tokenism even coming into play, but there may be someone out there again, we're, we're, we are, we're in a sea of ignorance other than, you know, and, and around us, there's a lot of ignorance. There's a lot of trolls and a lot of people that, um, that will quickly respond straight from emotion instead of thinking about what they are about to respond to, you know, and, and, and be disrespectful
1: and fear i think people are afraid to reach out because it's super uncomfortable and i think people who aren't used to asking hard questions are afraid or and or afraid of seeing what they maybe don't want to see
2: right absolutely that happens a lot you know and i take my hat off i mean i like you know uh, this conversation that we're having you know it, it does take a form of courage you know even from your end you know uh and I always I always my my end uh, stepping in front of a new audience and stuff, you know, it, it there is an act of courage, you know, and to deliver something of truth and something of honesty, uh, of real life experience that what we hope at the end uh creates um inspiration. It creates, you know, uh togetherness, unity. Um, it's supposed to help pull back the the lens or change the lens and Lift the veil to see things just a little bit much more different to help educate, and and the only way to do it is doing things like this, you know. And I take my hat off to companies that's that's willing to step out on on the on, on the ledge here. That's that can also be dicey of their brand, but that's what creates change. That's what creates change. You know, it's it's being able to come together and 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 connect and and grow into you know in into one voice you know and and people see that they start to learn that, and again it's it's to some people they're gonna jump on board, and then some of them are not going to jump on board. It may take them a little bit longer, you know, but uh I think in my last podcast I had, I was talking about uh, this is the type of work that I call running a marathon you know uh it's a process. That's an ongoing of work where we have to be constantly and consciously engaging all the time of differences of all walks of life in order to dismantle the ignorance that's in front of us. You know, uh having a one off conversation or a one off event, you know, or maybe protesters and stuff, it doesn't do anything. It's just a one off. It's a hundred yard dash. Right You know, and once when it's done, it's done. has the situation changed? No, it will only change when we decide to actually get into this marathon together and basically run the distance. We need to run the distance together in order to dismantle the ignorance that lies in front of us because what we're dealing with we're not just dealing with a one year of ignorance, we're dealing with you know two hundred three hundred whatever years of ignorance that has been instilled, injected into the built of the United States, you know, Uh, and that's in our system. That's everywhere we go, every, how we're wired. So if we're talking about dismantling ignorance, then we're talking about prepping ourselves and get ready for the long haul to walk this walk and to slowly chisel away the ignorance that's in front of us because it's going to take Not just one, but it's going to take an army to make this work. It's going to take an army, you know, an army of a collective army of of all race, period, all disability. You know, it's going to take a collective army of all the multicultural of voices to come together to walk this walk here and be prepared for the long haul, you know, because it's definitely a work in progress.
1: Yeah, I feel like it starts like exactly like you said, it starts the protests or, you know, it starts wherever, yeah. The hundred the hundred meter dash. And then from there though, I feel like the conversation is really where the baton keeps getting passed, if yeah. you want to talk from a, a marathon stance.
2: Absolutely. I
1: feel like we have to have conversations. So the question is this then. And I could only I mean people right now who are sick to death of me talking about feminism are rolling their eyes, but it's the only thing I can compare it to. It's like people saying to me, Don't speak about being a woman. Just be a woman and be great. Mm-hmm. We can see you're a woman. Don't talk about it. And I get it. And I lived like that for a really long time. But I feel like you need to have conversation to have forward movement and momentum. What about being a, a person of color? Do Would you prefer for the next person that you run into on the river to just obviously see that you're black and say, hey, how's it going? I'm John. Nice to meet you, Chad. What fly are you using? And just treat you exactly like an equal. Or would you prefer, John, to ask you a little bit more about your story and ask you more about... Your struggles, because that's that's a good person either way, right? Both right. Of those situations is a right. good person. What do you prefer?
2: You know, I think for me, uh, I'm an advocate. <laughs> you know, by you know by by heart, I'm an advocate for veterans, um, an advocate for youth, advocate for conservation, uh, humanity, and so uh, I think what what gets me going and what I look for is opportunity to be able to share a little bit much more deeper than just. What's in my fly box? I like to be able to connect. Being able to connect gives me the opportunity to create a relationship uh, with that person. And that relationship can easily turn into creating a greater experience of anglers on the water, you know, Through that process, we are talking about the flies, but we got a little bit much more of a deeper conversation happening than just the fly fishing. When I, at the end of the day, uh, when we get ready to walk off that water, the sun's going down, et cetera, you know what? We may not have caught fish. And even if we did catch fish, I can guarantee you that the fish is nothing but the byproduct. You know, the bigger picture is what we have learned about one another. The experience is what we shared together on the water. And how we mentored each other on the water. Uh, and 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 the outcome is like, I have a brother, I have a family, I have community, and guess what? It has nothing to do with color, but he's white, or you know what, she's white, I have a sister, you know, And, and 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 but but there's a little much more deeper, you know, if you go through life not wanting to know about that person. And you make the judgments, but you also have a conversation about what's in the fly box. Where's the depth of your own existence of being able to find yourself in a community of friendship or something greater that's bigger than you to be able to feel whole as a human? Where's 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 the depth? I can't live like that. I I have to have depth in my life. You know, I have to have meaning in my life uh the people who I connect with has to have that too, you know. And if they don't have that, if you give me enough time with you, we'll find that depth. <laughs> you know, and we'll find that meaning together, you know, and, and so and I think that's that right there is what what will bring me to the front as a shield and get me going and get me to stand and fight for my brother and my sister. Because now I I, I we have a history here you know, what's going on, you know? And and so I hope I gave you the right answer of <laughs> your question there, you know? So, but yeah.
1: Absolutely. Oh, Chad, we are so honestly thankful to have you. Like I am so thankful to have you in this sport. Just thank you. Um, I know that you had mentioned, I'll wrap this up here, but I know that you had mentioned that you've been receiving some uh, hate from all of this. I just, I, that was before we were rolling and we don't need to dive into it. I think yeah. it's highly per- personal in a lot of ways, but why are people sending you these things?
2: I don't know why. I, I can't answer that. Uh, it's it's really hard. I, I I think it's just pure ugliness that's wrapped into a lot of ignorance, you know, and it's also a reflection of where that person is at in their life, uh, then not loving themselves. And, you know, and I think I really believe like if you really, if you really don't love yourself, then you're going to have problems with all kinds of stuff.
1: Was it primarily like were people just reaching out to you out of the blue uh, or was it primarily in response to your article it or was social all, media?
2: It's all in response to my article. Uh, and also i got some uh, anonymous uh, text messages. It was crazy. This morning, I'll read this to you right quick. I, I woke up this morning. It was totally irrelevant. It's irrelevant, but it's hate and it doesn't make sense. It says millions of blacks think having kids out of wetlock. Mob violence and dropping out of school is okay. So as a group, why should I listen to those that refuse to act civilized on my river? That, that, that's what I woke up this morning. I woke up this morning with that text. (laughs) That's what I woke up this morning. You know, it was, it's crazy. I'm, you know, and, and, and that's like one out of like 20 texts that that came through. It was crazy. On my river, you know, that's really interesting. That, that mentality of ownership, that, that mentality of my, that really sticks with me a lot, you know, because I see that a lot amongst white male anglers. And I'm, and, and, and it's this possession of ownership that is really not theirs. It's not. The river's made for everybody. It's, it's made for everybody.
1: And what, what's so scary is that so often these are the same people who are beside us, and we don't even know because absolutely. we just talk about what's in the fly box. We don't even have the conversation.
2: You're absolutely right. You're absolutely.:
1: right. We need to talk. There's such an opportunity there for us to be able to go beyond what's in your fly box, John, and learn their story, because <laughs> he or she, whoever wrote that, has a story for, you know, a reason why they wrote that. And: Yeah.
2: Exactly. Yeah. And yeah.
1: If we just talk. I mean, obviously in a lot of cases, it's going to be an impossible conversation, but yeah. it's not always, you know, I pod- podcasted Spencer Greening. He's an indigenous scholar in BC and he really mm. opened my eyes about the racism that they face. And yeah. my mom, who is a beautiful, incredible woman who is not racist, we th- mm. we thought, my mom mm. listened to that episode and she said, April, I can't thank you enough for that because I didn't realize that I did have my own racial tendencies and my own stereo. We call it stereotypes. It's easier, I think, for mm-hmm. us to say mm-hmm. stereotypes, but it just right. takes a little bit of listening. That's all. Sometimes, yeah. a lot of the time,
2: that's sometimes a lot. You know, and that's what we don't do. We don't do that for one another. You know, um, you know, especially you know on the comments and all that kind of stuff on, on the uh, the article that I wrote that got published. All that kind of stuff. All of that information. That's all. These ugly stuff is all straight out bursts of straight emotional charge. That's it. No one's not taking the time to think, you know. And I, I take my hat off to a lot of the anglers out there who are taking the time because they actually are sharing it. And it says, "Before you respond, please think about what he's saying here. Just please think about it, you know." And that's what I'm asking. Just take your time and think about it. You know, it's it's not a quick charge of emotion. I'm actually challenging you because what I'm talking about when I'm challenging you. Is that even though that you're white, but I'm asking you to squint your eyes just a little bit and try to see it and try to feel it of what it's like having black skin. And fly fishing, you know, that's what I'm challenging you to do. You know, and it's a hard thing to do. It's extremely hard, you know, um, and not everybody is going to take that challenge, you know, and they're going to, you know, spin off and, and 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 operate from fear, operate from a troubled uh, past or troubled soul or whatever you want to call it. But to the ones that want to take that time and reflect and look at things from a different perspective are the ones that has that opportunity uh, to help create change. And as I said in the article, is that there is a privilege there to where they have white have an opportunity to lean in to the situation with privilege to help fill the gap and dismantle the ignorance of hate and race. And that's the the beauty and the benefit of black and white coming together and working together here. You know, it's when we can acknowledge and see. we can acknowledge the color, we can acknowledge where we at. We can acknowledge the differences and we can also acknowledge the hate and, and, and ignorance at the same time. It says, you know what? Let's link up. It's time to link up. It's time to dismantle this. And we're going to walk together. We're going to walk together through this and we're going to win. That's really what it's about.
1: And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you for listening.